It was uh, two years ago today, or this Sunday, two years ago, was the last time we met like in a normal way before the whole COVID thing happened. And it happened to be that my parents, my mom and dad, was like, talking with them, visited them yesterday, and, and they were talking about this, that they had started talking about retirement. My dad's a pastor, he's 87, and we're talking about retirement. And, and I thought in my mind, I, I hope he just doesn't retire, he just keeps going as long as he can. He pastors a neat little church out in the country. They have a little parsonage next door. The situation seems good for them. He seemed like he was doing well, but he knew that it was time for him to retire. And so he kept talking about that. And I kept hoping in my mind that he would kick the can down the road. And then, but he didn't. And he decided that, that his last week was uh, two years ago this Sunday. And they moved out of the parsonage. I went down there on my day off and helped them move. And they moved out of the parsonage over to Kalamazoo into some housing that was there. And, the, and that week, everything closed down, and it would have been impossible for them to move, impossible for them to do what they were doing. And they were talking about that yesterday, as I was talking to them, as one of a thousand stories that they could tell about how faithful that God is when you trust him with your life. Years ago, when I was a boy, a real popular Christian musician from Grand Rapids. His name was John W. Peterson. His songs, a lot of them were in the hymn book at the time. And he wrote a song that kind of goes like this. Jesus led me all the way, led me step by step each day. I will tell the saints and angels when I lay my burden down. Jesus led me all the way. I always love that. Jesus led me all the way. Led me step by step each day. I will tell the saints and angels when I lay my burden down. Jesus led me all the way. But how does he do that? How do you know when he's telling you something? How do you know what to do and what not to do? How do you know what's true? My goodness, it's easy to be cynical and skeptical in our time because so many people are lying to us for money. <laughs> how do you know who to believe and how do you know how to filter all the information that you get? Everyone's running an angle. Everyone has a thing they're doing. They're selling us something or, or they've got a philosophy or they've got an idea. How do you, how do you know what's true? And today, we're in this beautiful, this gorgeous bit of scripture in 2 Peter in chapter 1 in verses 16 to 21 that answer that question so powerfully. We have a divine filter through which we can pass all important things to decide what is true, who we can trust, what we can believe. In 1 Peter, Peter writes a letter to the uh, elect exiles, if you will, the the Christians that are scattered uh, throughout the area, he writes a letter to prepare them for suffering because following Jesus is always going to involve some hardship. And so how can we finish faithful is the, first, is the subject of the first letter. How can we finish faithful when we are going to have to go in a hard, follow a hard way? A suffer, we're going to have to suffer. And that was the general subject of the first letter that Peter wrote. Now, as he prepares to die, he writes another letter. He's got something on his heart. We know, and we're going to see this today, that he, 
It wasn't an individual letter that he cooked up himself. It was something God literally and, and miraculously inspired in him to write. But in this case, it's, the, the thing he takes aim at is on our pilgrimage, on our journey to faithfulness, we're not only going to have to face hardship, we're going to have to face misdirection. We're going to have to face false teaching, people that tell us things that aren't true that are dangerous, that could misdirect us, that could send us down a lethal path. And he's going to talk about that. And in particular, the, the, the false teachers that were affecting the people he was writing to were trying to put a seed of doubt in their mind about a key doctrine of the church, a truth, which was the second coming of Jesus. And so that was the issue of that day in that place. There's, there are different issues today. There are major issues in the church today that faithful people have to decide on. They have to be valiant in that thing. And they can be valiant in a hundred other things that aren't the issue of the day. But if they're not valiant and faithful in the thing that's the issue of the day, they're not really valiant now, are they? Luther said that in this famous quote, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil at that moment are attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christ, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. There are key doctrines that are being attacked, truths of Scripture that have been accepted through the centuries that are being attacked by people who even call themselves evangelical Christians today. It's, in other words, what am I getting at? The book that we're about to study, the book that we're studying, is so relevant, even though it's 2,000 years later, from the very beginning of the church, there was a problem with people saying, this isn't true, that isn't true, about a, a biblical doctrine. Paul had to deal with it, Peter had to deal with it, John had to deal with it, and today we have to deal with it. We can't have a Christianity that doesn't deal with things that are said by false teachers and false professors. This is attributed to Orwell. He said, or he was said to have said, in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. In a time of universal deceit, just telling the truth is a revolutionary act. Maybe you could, maybe you could put it this way. We all are watching on the television and on the internet a resistance unfold in the Ukraine, a resistance to an invasion. It's very much that way spiritually for us. There's an invasion of error, and, there and with faithful people, there must be a resistance. Now you're saying, Pastor, you, why, are you, why are you saying this? this? It seems, you know, strident. It's like, well, we're preaching, the, we're teaching the Bible, and this is the next chunk we're in, and that's what the passage does. A lot of the Bible does this. A lot of the Bible refutes error. And so for us to cherry-pick passages that are motivational or happy, for us just to cherry-pick passages that are therapeutic, for us to just cherry-pick passages that you can preach with uh, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Muslims all together and no one would object, would not be faithful to the Word of God. And so we want to be faithful to the Word of God. I'm talking to you here in this beautiful text. There's two major things you see, actually, um, two sections, if you want to understand this. I see it super clear. 
is that in verses 16, 17, and 18, we have, a, we have a, a section here, and the subject of that section is Peter talking about his eyewitness testimony of the transfiguration, which, is, which foreshadows the second coming. That's what he's doing. But then in the second section, the last three verses, in verses 19, 20, and 21, it's like he ratchets it to another powerful level, and he talks about what we would call the inspiration of Scripture, the origin of Scripture being God. Not just inspiring, but inspired as in breathed by God or men speaking as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit is the, the exact language used in this text. And so, but if you'll allow uh, for my homiletical arrangement for your advocation to help you, we're going to circle back into the text and I want to show you three things, three reasons that you can trust the scriptures as your filter. Three reasons that you can build your marriage on the scripture, even when marriage is hard. Three reasons why you can create your sexual ethic around the scriptures, even when you may have strong inclinations otherwise. Three reasons why you can organize your finances around the scriptures, even though you're tempted to do otherwise. Three reasons why you can treat your enemies like Jesus said to treat your enemies, even though everything in you wants to treat them differently. Three reasons you can trust the Bible. Three reasons. So, you excited about this? Me too. Let me show you, show you the first one. You can trust the scriptures because they're trustworthy and they're true because they're based on eyewitness testimony. You can trust the scriptures because they're based on eyewitness testimony. Verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power, and in particular, it's gonna, you're going to see in chapter 3, it's the second coming that the false teachers are attacking. When we made known to you the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the coming there is the word almost exclusively used for the second coming in the original language. So the parousia, it's the coming of Jesus in the second coming. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The next verse he's going to be a bit more specific. But before we move on, it's interesting. There's storytelling and then there's storytelling. You know, an old woman in the South might say, are you storying me? And what she would mean is, you're telling a lie. If you're storying me, am I right, Ed, down in Kentucky, if, you, if a woman on the porch said, you're storying me, that would be, you're telling me a lie. But now if I said, I'm going to tell you a story, I wouldn't want you to go, oh, pastor's going to lie to us now. I wouldn't want you to think that. I, I would like be paraboling you. Let me tell you a story that's true to the core, even though it didn't happen, but it's true, like that. And then there's reporting history accurately. That's a serious matter. The Bible is based on historic reports that are accurate. <laughs> they're, they're, I'm sorry, Ken Wyatt's a newspaper guy. He's sitting right here, and I'm looking at him, and I'm thinking about him and you know, our regard for him. He's retired from the, the newspaper, though he, he still writes. He can't just put things on paper. He has to report accurately. Immediately, he would be exposed. That didn't happen. That piece isn't true. Am, am I right? That's, it just has to be as accurate as you can possibly make it. That's the kind of thing that, that's what Peter's saying. What I'm telling you happened. It's accurate, not a myth. And there were myths in the culture. We know, we know this. There are a number of, you know, Greek 
God, small g, mentioned by name in the Bible. We know in the Greco-Roman world that kind of came out of Crete, the, the Grecian gods and the Romans adopted them and gave them Roman names, and they probably came out of Egypt originally. And some people actually believe they were true origin stories. This is probably not what Peter's talking about right now because there were mystical Gnostic myths that he's probably pushing back against here but I would go into that, but I don't understand it very well. Let's just say the Gnostics had false teaching. I've never had adequate training or I haven't gone down that rabbit hole deep enough to explain what it was exactly. But it's a little bit like when you go to a philosophy class and they say something and you go, I don't know why that's wrong, but I know it's wrong because if it's true, the Bible isn't true. So they're wrong. That, that's, that's more profound than you know. Than you know. If somebody tells you something and they use high-sounding philosophical words or myths or, uh, and then it just sounds academic and they're saying it in a big marble building somewhere and they're paid a lot and they have, you know, regalia and such. And so you're all intimidated by that. Just go, is that what my Bible says? Because the Bible is true. And the professors, we love them, but they come and go and they change. And the smart ones, they sit at the feet of Jesus, of course. We have them in a room. Listen to what the Bible says, just a little quick Passover on some of this. First Timothy 1, 4, don't devote yourselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Stick to the Bible, not the myths. First uh, Timothy 4, 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Second uh, Timothy 4, 4, turn away from listening to the truth. They wander off into myths. Titus 1, 7, uh, 14, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commandments of people, by the way. Turn away from those things. These are just warnings. Peter's saying, that's not what we're doing. We're reporting things that really happen. Verse 17. Oh, and by the way, the Bible is objective truth then. Of course, there are different kinds of poetry, different kinds of literature. But the Bible is reporting objective truth. It's not intended to be used as a collection of inspirational sayings from which to pick motivational tidbits to confer or, or, or to find things that sound good and confirm your biases or your prejudices or, or your hatreds or your hunches. That's not what the Bible is. The Bible is saying something. And our responsibility is to find out, what is the Bible saying? God is speaking. What does the Bible say? And so that's that. Verse 17, for when we received honor and glory, when he received honor and glory, now he's going to talk about, he's talking about a specific incident now. For when he received honor, Honor and glory from God the Father. The voice was born to him from the majestic glory. This is a cloud of glory. Voices coming out of a cloud of glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. When did God say that to Jesus? Well, you know the Bible well enough to know. He said it at the beginning of his ministry and toward the end of his ministry. He said it at his baptism. God spoke out of a cloud. Said almost the exact same thing. And at the transfiguration. Now, students of the Bible, let me teach you something. Say this with me, or unless you don't want to, because I want to force you to talk. Okay. Say 1799. Say that. 179. You don't like doing that. Okay. Just think it then in your brain. 17, if you say it, it'll help. 1799. Think of the synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark, <laughs> you look at me like, why are you, why are you doing this to me? Because I'm trying to help you remember something. 1799 is where the transfiguration accounts are. Matthew 17, 
Mark 9, Luke 9. Now, that's why. So you, hopefully you can remember that because if you go home this afternoon, you say, I'm going to read Matthew 17. I'm going to read Mark 9. I'm going to read Luke 9. Those are the, those are the uh, synoptic accounts of the transfiguration, and they include different things. They're fascinating. It doesn't take long to read them. Let me give you a little rundown of what happened in the story. Jesus goes up to a mountain. They call it later the Holy Mountain. And it says it's a high mountain. So if you've been to the Middle East and you've been around the, the lake region there, there are mountains of various sizes. One particular high mountain, I wonder if it's not that one. Go up to a high mountain. It's probably near Caesarea Philippi because something happens in the near proximity in Caesarea Philippi. My mom and I were studying this yesterday. We were talking about it a little bit, and she was doing a little research and, and uh, had a suggestion, maybe Tabor, but that's a far away from Caesarea Philippi, so it's kind of fun to do that in the Bible. They went up to a mountain. Who went with them? Three witnesses went with Jesus. Who were they? Peter, James, and John. Hmm. Now, what were they doing? Peter two times, at least two times in the Bible, is at a very, very important time doing what? <laughs> Somebody, some of you are doing this right now. No, no, I don't see anybody doing this right now. Sleeping, which I'm sure you wouldn't be doing right now. Sleeping, Peter's sleeping. It's recorded in Matthew, and they say Peter was the source for Matthew. That's interesting. Peter's sleeping. The, the disciples are a little bleary-eyed, and Jesus starts to glow. <laughs> three big things happen, three big major things. Jesus is glowing, transfigured, Shining through his clothes, brightness, shining, a miraculous brightness. He's joined by a couple of Old Testament characters, Moses and Elijah. And then most shocking of all, there's a glory cloud and the voice of God comes out the glory cloud. You might remember this incident. You, you might be sitting on the porch years from now talking with your grandchildren going, you know, when I was on the mountain, the high mountain, you know, with Jesus, where, where I went. And, you know, I was... I was sleeping, and then I woke up, and, and then there was, Jesus was glowing, bright. It was amazing. Glory, is that something I can explain? Moses saw the glory of God. He came glowing off the mountain. Stephen, dying, saw the glory of God, glowed with the glory of God. These men were on the mountain. Jesus is joined by Moses and Elijah. Incidentally, Moses never got to go to the promised land, did he? Except here. I think like, that's kind of cute. Jesus goes, come here. There. Now we've got that behind us. Anyway, that's Ken Pierpont's little trivial observation. Moses gets to the promised land. Jesus talks with them about his departure. He says it in Luke. He's talking about his death in Jerusalem. Okay, so he's glowing. And now Peter's awake. <laughs> and James and John are awake. And they're a little bit freaked out. And then Moses and Elijah appear, and that's like, wow. Peter's like, this is a good thing. <laughs> An interesting understatement. Another passage, Peter's saying, not knowing what he was saying. Another passage, you know, Peter says, he's the kind of guy, I love people like this, who feels like he needs to say something. He's that kind of guy. Some people are like, in a situation like this, they would not talk. But Peter's the guy that says, and he says something really nice. You know, he says, why don't we build three tabernacles? Moses, Elijah, Jesus. It sounds like a reasonable idea. Let's have a building program here. All of a sudden, bang, the sky. There's a glory in the sky, and God is speaking. And he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. 
<laughs> Peter's like, oops, I'm sorry, I, I imagine. You know, Peter's like, oh, man, my. They're going to say to Peter, we're going to use you later. Be quiet right now. You need to pay attention. Well, what's going on? I interpolate. He says, listen, my son, on the way down the mountain, and, and, the, and when, Jesus, when God appears, Moses and Elijah disappear, it's Jesus he's talking to, and there are three witnesses. And they're establishing an apostolic witness, by the way. And on the way down the mountain, if you conflate all the stories, you, you realize Jesus talked to Moses and Elijah about his death in Jerusalem, and then he talked about his resurrection on the way down the mountain. And the disciples asked about when is Elijah coming, and he describes that. They didn't realize that was John the Baptist. He's already come. It, before, I believe it's in the Gospel of Luke, he says, some of you standing here, will see the kingdom of God, and they, and they misunderstand that maybe to mean there's going to be a military takeover thing, and this is probably the incident he's re reporting. This manifestation with Jesus, this transfiguration is a foreshadowing of the second coming. This is a, this is a foreshadowing, this is a glimpse into the kingdom. You see the kingdom here. Jesus' transfiguration functions as a prelude an anticipation of his coming glory. That's why Peter brings it up, because he's talking about his second coming, and he uses the transfiguration as evidence he is going to come in power, in glory. Charles Wesley wrote so many beautiful sacred poems. One of them, we'll sing at Advent this year when we get there in a beautiful, beautiful song. It goes like this. Christ whose glory fills the skies, Christ the everlasting light, Son of righteousness, arise. Triumph for the shades of night. Dayspring, dayspring from on high, be near. Daystar, in my heart, appear. Verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Three witnesses. It's a pretty cool story, isn't it? Francis and Edith Schaefer, Francis was a Presbyterian pastor in Philadelphia. He had his struggles and with uh, doubt. He met Edith. She was good for him all his life. They uh, were American. He was an American pastor. And he went to Europe in a children's ministry initially. And he found a place that was central to the train stations that happened to be in the mountains of Switzerland. And a beautiful place there in the mountains of Switzerland. They established a daughter, went to college and came home with a friend one weekend to ski. And the friend was, had some questions about the faith. And Francis was powerfully good at having one-on-ones with people that had doubts. And Edith was powerfully good at hospitality and brownies and stuff like that. And she also was very bright and well-written. But um, that became a ministry called Labrie, the shelter, where young people that had doubts would come to ski and to work and to read and to study and to have their faith strengthened. And in a book I did read by Francis Schaeffer, he talks about the truth of Genesis chapters 1 through 11 and borrowing from a professor that he had in seminary. He says, famously, God's truth is true truth. In other words, the liberal scholars had, had demythologized the faith. They had 
treated the Bible like it was ancient origin stories from pagan people, like it was shadowy myths that didn't really happen. And Francis Schaeffer said, no, it's space and time history. He wrote a book, Genesis, in space and time. It's space and time history. It is history that was recorded. Objective truth. Miraculous things that happen, but they happen in space and time. And he had this powerful ministry helping people untangle the difficulties. Because when you take even the most sophisticated academic approach to doubt and you boil it to the bottom of the pan, it still looks like a silly myth. How did the world begin? Well, when we're all done, what they're saying is something exploded somewhere. And then everything happened. Doesn't <laughs> sound very impressive to me. That in the Bible, it says, in the beginning, God. You can trust the scriptures because they're eyewitness testimony. Second, you can trust the scriptures because they came from God. <laughs> they came from God. This is what the Bible says. They didn't come from men. They were like, oh, good job. Let's put that one in the Bible. <laughs> they, were they were inspired by God. And it uses special language in, in, in 2 Peter here. Listen to verse 19. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. This is like pointing back to the Old Testament. You've got the law, the prophets, so such. To which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. This is a rich, sweet part of the beautiful text. You do well to pay attention. That's as close as it, as it comes to a command in this whole thing. You should pay attention. Take heed to this. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, and the morning star rises in your hearts. So the prophets saw a light in the darkness. The prophets heard a voice in the silence. And we are in a dark time. We are in a dark place. I fear for your discernment if you don't realize we are in a dark time and we are in a dark place. It's not a political thing, though it has political manifestations. It's not because we elected the wrong person or didn't elect the right person. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about spiritual darkness. We're talking about men and women who are rebelling against God and rejecting his word. And therefore, our land is plunged into deep spiritual darkness and has manifestations in politics and sexuality and everything else you can imagine. We're in a dark, dark place. And darkness is ignorance. And darkness is spiritual misdirection. And darkness always means great danger. And Jesus is the light. And that is expressed through the scriptures that God spoke. The scriptures are our source of enlightenment. There's a filter through which you pass everything else, every inclination that you have. Chuck Colson, before he died, he wrote a book called Surviving the Coming Dark Ages. It was years ago he wrote it. Surviving the, he said, we're living in the dark ages and we must prepare ourselves to survive. I would say, let me simplify this for your help. And that is, know your Bible and take it as truth, space and time Facts that are recorded and the things that God said are true. They are the filter through which you pass everything else. So somebody says this shadowy mystic thing or that, you know, Native American thing or that Eastern mysticism thing or that Muslim thing, you pass it through the scriptures of God, the Bible, and you decide what's true. What people are doing is they're setting themselves up as the final authority and then they're eclectically kind of cherry picking what they have heard or, or, or like or what some popular sports personality or influencer on Instagram says. And they're, and they're kind of in, in a kind of an ugly mess. They're kind of baking their own poison cake out of that. 
There's, how's that for a really mixed bunch of metaphors together? He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, 1 Peter 1.20. Silly myths, cultural origin myths are implausible. They're silly. Modern scientific theories of origin boil to the bottom of the pan are every bit as silly, every bit as implausible. We weren't created by an impersonable, impersonal, unmoved mover. If we want to talk in terms of philosophy, there was personality in that creator who created people with personality, with human personality. If you want to talk in terms of, you know, science or, or pseudoscience, the, the Bible doesn't say the world started with a big explosion. The living God existed before the world began. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Verse 21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Men didn't cook this up on, them, on their own. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The idea in the original there is like they lifted the sails and God blew and, they, and it moved the ship. The Bible makes powerful claims for itself. It's, it's like Jesus claims for himself. You've often heard the Bible's claims for itself make it impossible for you to accept it as anything less than God's word. In other words, the Bible claims to be God's word hundreds and hundreds of times. God has spoken. And so if it's not that, then it isn't true in any way. Does that make sense? Why would I believe a book was morally valuable if it lied to me from the beginning? It doesn't do that. It doesn't allow you that, that option. It claims absolute divine inerrancy itself. Did you know this? The Old Testament, there are 2,000 direct claims that God himself is speaking. That isn't a bunch of poetry. That's straightforward claims of truth. The Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles are equal in authority. Both had authority. Listen to 2 Peter 3. We're going to get there in a bit. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord, our Savior, through the apostles. And Peter later calls Paul's writing scripture, holy scripture. He says this in 2 Peter 3, 16. He does this in all his letters when he speaks about them, these matters. There's some things in them that are hard to understand, Peter says, which ignorant, unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. Holy writings. Graphic. And you know this. 2 Timothy says, from childhood you've known, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. All scriptures breathed by God. Breathed by God. That's the inspiration idea profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. It's, it can be the filter for your life. You get it. So why do we trust the scriptures? We trust the scriptures because they're eyewitness accounts and because they came from God. And the third thing, we go back into the text, to the sweet part of the text to, to remind you, you can trust the scriptures because one day Jesus himself will confirm their truth. Jesus himself. Now, what does this mean in verse 19? It's fascinating in verse 19, what, is, what does this mean where, where it says, you'll, you'll do well to pay attention. We have the prophetic word, this is the Bible, that we, that, that's more fully confirmed. It's like more sure than if we had an eyewitness account of the transfiguration. You have a Bible. The Bible is more, more sure than if you had an experience. Experience is good, but the Bible is even better. It's what it's saying. As to a lamp in a dark place until the day dawns. If you look in this passage for places referring to the second coming, this has to be one of them. 
otherwise, what is the day? Is used as a technical term in the scripture as the day of the Lord. It's initiated by the return of Christ. It's the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. Before the sun, you have the Venus that's the morning star. You know the sun is coming. Someday Jesus is coming back. Full brightness is going to shine. Then you will know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The only one. You want to be on the right side of history then. You can start this morning. Why don't you decide today? I will put my faith and my trust in Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. I will believe that Jesus is God and all that he said is true. Therefore, I will accept the Bible as the word of God. I will filter my life through the Bible. I will not knowingly disobey the Bible because it is the word of God. And when I have, I'll repent and turn my life and obey what the Bible says. Follow those people and watch where they go and watch what their lives are like. They will not be, they will not not have troubles, but they will not be alone in their troubles. Well, you may not see it all, but someday you will see it all when Jesus comes back. Now we see in a mirror dimly, Paul said in 1 Corinthians, but then we'll see face to face. Now we'll know in part, then we'll know we'll be, we, we'll, we'll be fully known. Here's what I'm saying to you. If you're in, in any, if you're in any doubt or you're hurting today, let me remind you, you do well to heed these things. It would be good for you to obey the Bible. And if you're a, a beginner, you're a seeker, and you're wondering, should I be saved? Should I follow the Lord? Please hear me. I plead with you to talk to God and to ask God to help you believe and see that Jesus is God and that the Bible is true. Anything that contradicts the Bible is false. The Bible is true. Jesus is God. You will face him someday in judgment. Believe in him. Turn from your sin, from your own ideas that you had, and turn to this, and you will be saved. And if you are a believer, and whatever it is that's going through your mind right now, the troubles that you're having or the difficulties that you face, you can go to God. Stuff they say on the news, like, what in the world? Go to the Bible. Believe God. Trust Him. When I was a little boy, my dad, I was talking to my dad the other day, and I said, Dad, where was Second Baptist Church in Grand Rapids? I remember as a little boy going to Second Baptist Church, but I was just a tiny little boy, and I didn't remember. I said, Dad, where was this? He goes, Golden, California. I'm like, okay. So I looked it up. Sure enough, west of 131 on Golden, California, was the Second Baptist Church. And I looked it up on Google, and I looked at the street view. And when I saw the street view, I'm like, I remember that. I remember being a little boy and going to the basement at Second Baptist Church, and we sang a song. It, maybe you've heard it. Um, in all the great literature of the Western world, it stands with it. Oh, the B-I-B-I-L-E, that's the book for me. I stand alone. Did you guys sing this? On the word of God, the B-I-B. And this is Kenny, hyperactive Kenny. I put the Bible on the ground, and I thought about standing on top, because that's what we said. It's concrete, you know. I stand alone. And the teacher's, Kenny, pick up the Bible. Pick that up. Pick that up. Kenny, don't ever stand on the Bible. That's what the song says, I say, knowing that I was kind of getting in her ear. Isn't that, isn't that funny? I was sitting in my study a number of years ago, and a secretary says to me, one of our missionaries is stopped by, and he, he wonders if you have time to talk to him. I'm like, are you kidding? <laughs> talk to a missionary. Yeah, tell him to come in. Here comes a missionary, Charles Bud Johnson. He's very old. He's bent over with age. He's wrinkled with age. His voice shakes when he talks. He's got one ear missing through a cancer and had a false ear on the side there. He said, 
I wanted to come in and meet you. I heard you're the new pastor. I'm like, yes, Mr. Mr. Johnson. Like, Mr. Johnson was a boy in, in the church over there. And they took him on a bus. He played the, he was a University of Michigan guy, and he played the Austrian flugelhorn, David. And that's interesting, isn't it? And he played with the voice of Christian youth after he got saved. And he rode the bus. And then he started into a career and decided that he would, instead he would quit and be a pastor and start churches. And he traveled with a group starting churches, started three different churches and married and along the way. And he was a faithful guy. At one point, the denomination that he was in started to drift away from historic Christianity. And they said to him, you don't want to leave this group. You have a pension in this group. You have a retirement. John D. Rockefeller donated a million dollars back then to fund the retired ministers and missionary account in this denomination to keep pastors from bolting the denomination. But Bud Johnson said, I'll just go and trust God with my retirement. And here he sat in my office, way up in years, wrinkly and, and well-fed and faithful, had started churches all around, and now he's living in retirement in Arkansas, and he was a, I, he was a preacher at a church, a, uh, uh, interim pastor at a church and his wife Eunice was her name he said he gave his talk in prayer meeting that night and he told the people that he decided when he was a young man that he would build his life on the Bible and trust him for retirement and he was glad he did that and then after that I would always get a note after he died I would get a note from his widow Eunice every month because we sent her money every month and every month she sent us a note, thank you for the gift. I want to be like that guy. I'd like to have more money, you know, but I, I want to be like that guy. I want to be faithful to the Bible. I want to be faithful to the truth. I want to stand alone on the word of God. I want to, I want to build my life on the Bible. It's what the, that's why Peter said it would be well. It would be good for you to attend to this for you to obey. It'd be good for you to trust the Bible. We'd like to bless you. Would you stand for blessing?